to Natural MD Radio, your place to hear the whole truth on health and medicine for women and children and get the tools you need to take back your health naturally starting now. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Joining me today is a personally special guest because Celeste Fine is not only a colleague, but she's my book agent. And in working together, I got to know some very important facts and experiences that Celeste shared with me that I think are so important for you to hear today as listeners. Celeste is known for her reputation as negotiating six and seven figure book deals for high profile authors with big ideas and strong platforms. Celeste's goal is to have big ideas that make a big impact in print. Her clients include New York Times bestsellers, many of whom I'm sure you have read, including Sarah Gottfried, Isabella Wentz, Susan Albers, Kellyanne Petrucci, father of natural and naturopathic medicine and founder of Bastyr University, Joseph Pizzorno, Amanda Steinberg, who's the founder of The Daily Worth, and also a first female four-star general, Anne Dunwoody. But today we're not here to talk about Celeste's career and her accomplishments in her professional world. We're here to talk about an experience that Celeste had that was so compelling to listen to. And as a midwife and a physician, I've seen so many things happen where patients have received wrong diagnoses, thankfully not from me, but in hospital systems that I've worked in. I've seen people not get a second opinion when a second opinion could have changed their life or been life-saving. And I've also seen how hard it is to have to sort of become your own doctor in a way to dig through the truth of a condition that you're facing. And it's even that much harder when you're struggling with a condition that your children are facing or when you're pregnant. Thank you, Celeste, for joining me today to talk about what I know has been a personal odyssey that you're kind of on the other side of, but has really taken up a lot of your heart and emotional and mental space. Oh, well, thank you for having me on. And I am thrilled to be sharing this story uh, with results we had. You know, we, there are a lot of people who have gone through similar situations as us uh, that, you know, didn't have the the sort of ending or the beginning that, that we've had. So I'm grateful to share the story and I'm particularly grateful to be sharing it uh, from the vantage I'm I'm, I'm, I'm I'm enjoying with the two boys. Yes. So Celeste, go ahead and take it from the top. Celeste, tell us, tell us what you, what you faced. You were pregnant, you discovered you had twins, but then you discovered that there was something more going on. Great. So, you know, I got married, uh, oh my goodness, I, I guess a little over a year ago, a year and a half ago, almost two years ago. And, um, I'm sort of, and I'm 36 now. I was in my mid 30s, and obviously, everyone is familiar with all of the discussions about, you know, having kids and, you know, what your age is, and so I, you know, that always. And I'm a, I'm a career woman. My, my husband's almost 40, and so we were thinking about having kids and sort of started and didn't know if it was going to take a while or, you know, right away. And so there's all of that consideration when you're thinking about having kids. And um, I was uh, lucky enough that I actually got pregnant pretty fast, you know, maybe a month or two after we started trying, uh, you know, I, I was pregnant. And, um, 
you know, you go to the doctor and, you know, they say, you know, you never know how long it's going to, you know, this, this could be a, a, a sort of miscarriage really early. So don't count on anything yet because, you know, you're, you're 35 or 30, whatever age I was at the time. And then you go into the next appointment and then they say, oh, well, actually now we see there are two of them. And, uh, it was crazy. You know, I, I remember actually thinking, no, I'm sorry. You're actually looking at a monitor from the lady before me. That's not my stomach. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so then you're excited. Okay, it never even crossed our minds that we'd be having twins, and we don't have any twins in our family. And then uh, turned out they were identical twins, um, which I guess is you know fraternal twins. There can be some more genetic stuff. Identical twins uh, apparently is is more sort of random, and. Uh, you know, then we go and we get the tests where they, you know, they do the, the DNA, the blood test these days. And for some reason, I didn't have enough of the uh, kids DNA to be able to make sure everything was fine. So I had to keep taking those tests. And then uh, my father was Jewish. So I, I took these sort of tests about, um, you know, any sort of inherited genetic disorders on that side. And then I was a carrier for things. And you know, my husband is uh, Cuban and Dominican, so it was unlikely he was going to be a carrier. But still, the doctors were really concerned about this. So I, even right off the bat, you know, we were talking to geneticists, and and it was really interesting. The doctors, we the the um, my OBGYN was really freaking out about these like being carriers for stuff. So I, I learned really quickly. I mean, my the call I got a call from the doctor, and she said. You, you know, you're a carrier for this sort of rare uh, Jewish disease, is what she said. And I said, well, what disease? She said, I don't know. And I said, well, my husband's out of town for a couple of weeks, and uh, and he'll get tested to see if he's a carrier as well. She said, he doesn't have time for that uh, because you may actually want to kind of end this pregnancy because of this. I said, oh, my goodness. Well, what, well, what is this genetic thing that's so crazy? She said, I don't know. I'm like, okay. So I end up having to, like, Google and I call up, uh, and I, I wish I could remember off the top of my head what it was. Um, but it turned out it was like, a, you know, if, if the kids actually had it, it was kind of like if they'd had arthritis, right? And um, and then it also all of the chances of whether or not I could even, you know, the kid would even have, or the kids would even have that were sort of slight. So I learned right away that uh, there was clearly like a gap between what my doctor understood about like genetic testing and like the likelihood of things and, you know, whether or not that would even be expressed in the kid, you know? So it, I, I think it, at the time it was really upsetting to have a doctor kind of saying this stuff about the genetic testing, but it was also, it made it really clear to me right away that I wasn't really dealing with, I was dealing with people who kind of, you know, weren't, you hadn't, had it had all of this genetic stuff was so new that even the doctors were really being trained about what it meant. And I'm lucky enough that I work with a lot of people like you and doctors who, who, you know, I, I, I get that genes aren't everything. Right. And that, you know, it doesn't also, if you're a carrier, it doesn't mean that your kids aren't, are going to have it and blah, blah, blah. So uh, right away, it was helpful to know that I was dealing with human beings with limitations to training and that also I was dealing with new technologies and the way the doctors were talking about these tests were like, well, this means they're going to get it. That's like, well, there's margins of error and then there's other factors that go in and blah, blah, blah. So um, I, I felt lucky to be, to be, even though those are sort of hard things, I couldn't imagine people who don't deal with you know, professionals all of the time in the health space and don't deal with these topics, how scary 
it must be to be dealing with these genetic tests and with doctors who are interpreting these tests who don't have the experience to know, you know, what these interpretations mean and all, and all that. And calling you on the phone oh, at and, home. And, yeah, calling on the phone and <laughs> saying, you may want to terminate, but I actually don't know what this disease is. You know, so it's just, it's tough. There's not a lot of training around these genetic tests yet. I should, I wasn't even referred to a genetic counselor. I just knew to say, well, hey, is there a genetic counselor that I should talk to who is trained in this? And then we saw, you know, and, and, and I'm sorry, I'm spending a lot of time on this, but I just think it's important for women to know with the pregnancies, like, that a lot of this new stuff is really, really great, but you have to also keep it in context, which is it can give you lots of information, but it can also give you misinformation sometimes. And I, and it's, and so for me, um, it going, you know, if I were to do something like this again, I think I would have been saved a lot of heartache to kind of know, you know, these blood tests are very helpful. And Aviva, I'm sure you can kind of, you, you explain this better than anyone. These blood tests are really helpful. These genetic tests can be really helpful, but you need to understand what they mean and that we're dealing with humans and tests. And, and uh, um, while everyone, I think, wants concrete answers about stuff, that's not always what you're getting right away. It's really true. And then on top of it, when you get false positive information or information that sounds terrifying, but the statistics are actually infinitesimal, it, it lends an element of anxiety that's, I think, very hard for women to shake off around the pregnancy. And that can have an impact on your, your kind of overall sense of well-being, I think. A hundred percent. I mean, that's what I was saying. I was like, I just got pregnant very quickly right away the doctors are starting in, well, you're 35, so don't count on having this until your next appointment. So I was spending, you know, weeks being like, oh, I'm at an age where I can't count. And, you know, and there is, I think, a level of for any age or for anyone, like you can't count on these things. But I think what, what was really interesting to me, and I live in New York City, it is not abnormal to be, you know, 35 and pregnant, <laughs> you know, and, may, and maybe in all of the world, it's not abnormal for that. I don't, you know, I don't, this is not, my expertise, but you're set down this really um, cynical uh, conversation and all of these tests that people are very quick to say that the, the worst case scenarios of these tests apply to you because you're of a certain age. And, and, and I saw this throughout my experience. So it's from the very beginning before anything was even kind of wrong. So, so anyway, so just so I bring this up because there's a lot of genetic testing now. It's really useful, but I think uh, it's important for women to know, you know, because I, oh, my sister-in-law also, and she, she was younger and was doing genetic tests and things kind of popped up and all of a sudden she had to go down some courses to find out, you know, what these things meant. Just keep in mind that you're, you, you want to talk to people who know what these tests mean. And not just because someone's a doctor doesn't mean they're trained to know what they mean. I mean, is that, Aviv, is that fair? Are they, are, Absolutely. are, are doctors not being trained? Uh, I think we see this with all kinds of testing and not even just conventional medical testing, but we're seeing it with a lot of the sort of genetic testing that's being done in the functional medicine world. I have patients who come in with a 23andMe profile 
and they read the interpretation of it and said this one little tiny genetic change could increase your risk or your child's risk of lung cancer, but it's, it's a speculative change, and that in and itself doesn't mean that you're going to get that problem, but it really sends people down a very concerned road that then sometimes leads people to get more escalating levels of unnecessary and harmful interventions. And, you know, in pregnancy, and, you know, Celeste, your case is one of those cases where, you know, the one in however many, you know, the one in hundreds of thousands or even a million that you did need something. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But I have seen situations many times as a doctor and a midwife where a woman got a test, a genetic test or a blood test that said something could be wrong. And then she gets an ultrasound, and the ultrasound is inconclusive. So then she has to decide whether to get an amniocentesis. And then you're starting to talk about a procedure that has real risks to the baby. And, you know, most of the time, those tests actually were just a false positive. And so it, you do have to be really careful. And But on the other hand, as your situation shows, sometimes other tests do become necessary, although what your babies were, were dealing with had nothing to do with the tests, right? So it kind of takes us down another leg of your story. Yes, exactly. And, that, and that's what I would say is, um, I think then I, you know, what I'm also not saying is you shouldn't take these tests and not watch because precisely I'm an example of why you watch these things because in some instances they actually are necessary. So and another good example is, you know, I've had a couple of friends who've passed away from breast cancer, they had the, the uh, mutation and didn't know because it came down from like their father's side. Um, and so I, and my father is Jewish. And so I've, you know, I've asked doctors, like, you know, I'd like to just get the test to know. And there's a lot of doctors who will tell you, you shouldn't test it because it may not express itself. So you should, you know, you, you may not want to act. And then I asked my, you know, my surgeons who I, I love, and we'll talk about them a little bit later. And and um, one of the ladies is sort of the head of women's health over at Columbia, New York Presbyterian. And she says, you should know because it may, you may then want to start getting te- you know, just watch every six months. You don't have to. You can then choose the ways you want to act, but it's not going to hurt to know. And I think people are, you know, and, and I think it's probably improving, but I think we're still at a place where people think, you either take the tests and then you have to be hyper reactive or you don't take them because you 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 don't want to know and there is like a, a place where it's you know maybe i take them and i know that i don't need to be hyper reactive and it's it's information that may or may not express itself but it's it's power to know it's, it's uh, exactly anyway, right so, and, and uh, even with genetic testing in pregnancy usually what i say to families <laughs> is You can choose to not have any testing, you know, genetics or ultrasounds, and that's a completely legitimate choice. You can choose to have testing, and then if something is truly a problem, that gives you an opportunity to think about it and prepare for what you need to know about raising that special child. Or some women will want to make a decision to end that pregnancy, depending on the severity of the condition and what that baby may face as you are presented with. But again, you have to keep in mind that you can be making some very serious decisions based on what is sometimes false information. And had you taken that first doctor's advice, as you say, you would be telling this story from a very different vantage point. And I'm, you know, I'm so grateful that you were, um, 
you had the fortitude and conviction to press for more information. And that's definitely something I want to talk about today. But let's hear what happened next, because I know it's a very compelling story and it took you down a whole other part of your pregnancy journey. Right. Yeah. And so, so this, so that's all kind of like initial genetic testing. Fine. Once, so once you have twins and I think maybe just with identical twins, because, uh, identical twins, they are sharing, uh, sometimes they're sharing a, a placenta. So I had identical twins that were sharing a placenta. Um, and in those instances, you go in every two weeks to monitor how things are going because what can happen sometimes is what happened to me, which is, um, you know, we went in, I think I was, it was 14 weeks, you know, I was almost through the first trimester. Maybe I was just through the first trimester. My husband was actually out of town because we thought this is just a routine exam. And uh, I was supposed to be, because we did these sort of early blood you know, DNA tests, we, were, we didn't find out early what their gender was because I just was not, they were, it was not popping up for me. And uh, so we, this was where they thought they were going to be able to kind of tell us what gender they were. The lady was doing the ultrasound. It was clear they were boys. Um, and she just kind of kept going back and forth. Uh, sort of looking and like, you know, she's looking for you know, bladders and kidneys and all of the sort of normal things they look for. And I you know I've never been pregnant before, so nothing's really, re it's just taking a bit, you know, a while. And it's one of my sort of first exams. So I don't see anything. She goes in and out. Now, having been through this enough, I now know like this is abnormal when they bring doctors in and yeah. <laughs> people are kind of talking to each other and, and they need to keep getting more and more scans. So what ends up happening is, one of the doctors then after sort of 30 minutes of this, I think they're coming to just tell me what the genders are, but I kind of already know. And they say, well, you know, what's going on here is one of the boys, oh, we can't see his bladder and he has a lot less fluid around him than the other boys. So I'm like, okay, you know, what's a bladder? And then they tell me what this means is it's an early sign of what, what you call twin to twin transfusion syndrome, which basically... The way to think about it is in the placenta, there are connections between the like the vas like the vascular system of the two babies and little bits of and Aviva, you probably can explain this more accurately. But uh, blood can every now and then kind of go back and forth, but it's usually a pretty balanced back and forth between the boys and or between the babies. But what can end up happening is one baby ends up donating all of their blood to the other baby through these connections. And what, and the first sort of sign is they're like that the baby who's donating has less sort of blood going to them. So the bladder you know, it doesn't fill um, the fluid around the baby is like made out of like the baby going to the bathroom. So that fluid starts going down. And then alternatively, the baby that's receiving all the blood has like this really big bladder because they're just like pumping all this fluid through them. And then the fluid around them gets higher and higher. And what ends up happening is uh, that continues to happen to the point where uh, the donor baby uh, gets wrapped in the sort of membrane uh, and uh, the and is not getting, you know, it starts, it saves its brain and its heart first. So it, it starts taking away, it, using whatever it's getting and putting it to like the vital organs. Um, and then the other guy's heart gets really exhausted from pumping through all this blood. So it's terrible for both babies because basically the baby, the, the recipient baby's heart goes into heart failure 
and then the donor baby becomes um, anemic and then and, and sort of suffers as well. Uh, and then what con- then further complicates it when when the babies are connected through the placenta. Whatever happens to one of the babies really affects the other baby. So if you lose one of the babies. Um, there's a very high chance you lose the other one or that other baby will have suffered some sort of stroke for having been connected to the baby that, that passes away. So you, you, uh, and, and traditionally before there was this surgery, which we'll talk about, uh, you know, most of the time, 90% of the time, I don't, uh, something like that. Um, you know, not the, you know, the babies don't make it. Uh, it's, there needs to be some sort of intervention. And in our instance, because it was happening so early in the pregnancy, usually it presents itself around sort of 18, 20 weeks, and we were presenting at about 14, 15 weeks. Um, you need to intervene in some way or you'll, or you'll lose and or compromise the babies. Uh, if, does, does that kind of make sense? Aviva, is that a fair description of, of what this is? It's an absolutely great explanation. And, you know, it kind of raises a point, Celeste, which is what I have found is that, and particularly when women are diagnosed with either a rare complication or medical problem for themselves or a family member, you really have to kind of become what I call a citizen scientist. You have to, you have to, take a deep dive into understanding and learning what's going on. Now, you have a Harvard education behind you. Your husband's very well educated. Um, you had a little bit of flexibility at work from what we talked about to work a little bit from home and, and sort of do what you needed to do. But not everybody has the same level of knowledge, education, resources that you or I might have. And I, I've really seen people's lives um, just turned upside down by a complicated diagnosis. How? But even when you have resources, it doesn't it doesn't um, make the emotional or psychological impact better. So I'm curious. I mean, you're you're in a doctor's office. You're laying on a table. You're getting this exam. You're told this information. How did you integrate it? What did you do? And and what kind of came next for you? Yeah. So what I would say is, so when we first got the diagnosis, it's my it's sort of the original OBGYN who we already kind of know was freaked out already about my being a carrier for something. So I and I was you know just saw this like kind of fear in everyone's faces and eyes. So I didn't know. I was like, okay, this is sort of weird. But they say you know you need to come back in a couple of days and see where, how this is progressing, but this is what we think it is. Um, that OBGYN then says, you know, you should just terminate the pregnancy. I then go online and I'm looking all of this stuff up and I see, wow, everything I've just explained to you guys, like there needs to be some sort of intervention. Who does this? You know, who, like, how does this work? Okay. There's this laser surgery. So I'm kind of looking to see what the options are. And then, uh, I look and see, there's basically, I don't know, maybe 20 now in the world. There, you know, there are a few centers that happen to to offer the surgery to people. Um, one in Philadelphia and one actually at Columbia, right around the corner, where my my husband is as a, a professor at Columbia. And um, I talk to the, uh, you know, I go back in three days. We kind of confirm this is what's going on. And I, you know, it's you you ask about the feelings of it you know, it's scary. I mean, I called my husband, you know, flew home, uh, from California. He was, he was away. Um, my sister and mother flew because I was just like, 
you know, you're, you're pretty far along in there, you know, in this process and, you know, you're already kind of, you know, you have feelings, you know, about, you know, these, you know, how, what, how you want this to go. So a couple days later, they confirm and they actually refer us to a hospital in Philadelphia to see whether or not we're candidates for the surgery. Um, and then I say, well, what about this, this hospital down the street? They say, no, they don't offer it. I'm like, well, I actually, I mean, online, they say they offer it. Like, no, they definitely don't offer it. If they've offered it, they've done it a couple of times. So I'm like, okay, well, I know uh, a friend knew the head of the NICU there. I said, well, I'm going to just go and see these people too anyway. Like I said, we were diagnosed about 15 weeks. We call up both the Philadelphia hospital and the New York hospital. They both agree, you know, they can't really see us until about 16 weeks because there's nothing they could even do. Uh, you know, their, their preference is to, to do surgery after 18 weeks because that's when like everything is fused and that's like like when you look at all the studies, that's when uh, that you get the best results. Um, sometimes they can do it as early as 16 weeks, which is why they wanted you know that was a time when they could first bring me in. But basically, they're like you know between now and 16 weeks. Even if they're, you know, even if you are a candidate for surgery, you wouldn't be a candidate for surgery yet. So you just kind of have to wait. So now at that point, you're just thinking, come on, guys, you can you can do this. Get to 16 weeks. Right. So you're just kind of holding your breath every day and giving your your, your, your belly pep talks. And so we went to Philadelphia and we got a hotel for the weekend because we were like, you know what? They're going to see us. They're going to offer us a surgery the next day. This is how it works. Great. So we go in and we'd been, you know, we go in, we drive to Philadelphia, we get to the hotel, we go and spend eight hours doing, you know, heart tests and more genetic tests and more ultrasounds and blah, blah, blah. Um, and the doctor, and this is, you know, sort of like the place that, you know, the OBGYN, I had spoken, you know, who I had been seeing, like really refers them sort of highly and they do, and they've saved plenty of people's and babies' lives. They say, you know, they take us into a room afterward, you know, after we kind of sign off that we'll be part of the research. And they say, you know, there's your, you are the worst case scenario that we cannot help. You're, you're not a candidate for surgery for X, Y, Z reason. We actually don't even think you have twin to twin transfusion. We actually think um, that this is probably either a like chromosomal issue or that it's this other thing that you, you're, makes you not a candidate for surgery. And um, your options are um, to either sort of try to terminate baby B in an effort to save baby A because there's no chance of saving baby B. But we actually think we can't even offer you that option. So it's probably just that you're going to have to terminate this baby. It was said with such confidence. And it was like, you know, he, we just these are the exams. These are what the results mean, and this is what you have. And we had said, well, you know, we're thinking about going to this other hospital. And the doctor was like, well, that would be, you'd be taking a wrong turn, right, more or less. So it was not also the opinion was like, you know, we don't want you talking to other people. So I part of why I'm, I'm so happy that you have me on here and why, you know, we agreed to do a commercial for the hospital and why we really are taking up this, this campaign is I had a really talented, well-regarded doctor who saves babies all of the time. You know, and a cynic would say they've got really high 
like positive, their outcomes are better than the at national average. So Cynic would say, or maybe that's because they really kind of uh, vet the people they offer. They're more conservative about the people they offer uh, the surgery to, you know, or it's just that, you know, they go in when they know they can save a baby, you know, who, who knows what it is. But I went to this place because I was told they were the best. And I have no reason to question that these people are not very good at their job. But as you'll see, they got it wrong. And the only reason I, I mean, that was one of the worst night going at home, checking out of that hotel and being like, okay, we check, we reserved this hotel for three days because we were sure we were going to go in and have surgery just to give our babies a shot. And cause, but, and I didn't explain this, but basically what happens is they can go in surgically and laser the connections between the babies so that they no longer are transfusing blood to each other. So this is the only way you can intervene to save the babies if they're as extreme a case as it was for us. Um, and I am telling you that it was, it was as if we were being told fact. And if my husband, so my husband is a professor of, of uh, ancient Greek and I work with doctors all of the time. I'm very aware that these are opinions and people are just doing their best. My, my husband said, what I do for a living is I study narratives. And what just happened is that doctor sat in that room and he connected the dots between those, those exams and what he thought, you know, and what, what he thought, his interpretations of those exams. And he was telling a narrative that made sense for him. That doesn't mean that's fact. That is someone putting together the information from their perspective. Okay, and we need to go and talk to another doctor. Let's let's just Pardon? like if you don't mind, let's hit a pause button right there. That is such a powerful insight because we all can only speak in the language that we're trained in. And the medical profession is trained each and each silo of the medical profession. So whether you're a neonatologist, an obstetric, a reproductive endocrinologist, and a high-risk maternal mortality, maternal medicine, fetal medicine doctor, whether you're an oncologist, you're trained in a very sort of linear way with a limited set of facts that don't necessarily take and it's not that I want to say people should have false hope or magical thinking, but it's a very sort of black and white approach that doesn't allow for greater possibility a lot of time. And and again, I don't, you know, I don't want listeners to think, oh, like, you know, doctors are always wrong or always get it wrong because sometimes the facts are what the facts are. But I, I think we always have to dig deeper. And this piece of getting a second opinion is so important. And Celeste, I'm so glad that you did this. And I think that this narrative of getting a second opinion is so is so important for us to be able to bring forward. And partly because I think as women also, we are particularly trained from our earliest days to trust authority, to not trust ourselves, to play nice, to play by the rules, not challenge, you know. And and it really keeps a lot of people stuck in a wrong diagnosis, stuck in not getting solutions and not getting help. And most of the time, it's certainly not in as an extreme or life-threatening, potentially life-threatening situation as your boys were facing. 
but I see this happens day in and day out. So, you know, kudos to your husband and to both of you for recognizing that it was just a story and one story and one story in a very limited language. Right. And, th- and I'm so glad that you wrote. So and this is part of why it's, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this in a little bit more of a long format way, because I feel like it is particularly complicated for women. It's complicated when it comes to pregnancy. So, I mean, I just learned so much from going through this that if anyone just take, the, I think I just think it's helpful for kind of having gone through a worst case scenario in a lot of ways. I think it's really helpful for women to think about because you know, this isn't a, a magical thinking uh, story that like they very well could have been a hundred percent right. Right. So, you know, at the same time, and I, I, you know, we, Marcus and I decided to be really discreet throughout this whole process, partly because, so after this diagnosis or this, you know, I guess this diagnosis and this recommendation, and then we were recommended we went to go to a CVS because they were, they thought perhaps it was a chromosomal issue, but, but anyway, so I had people whose version of being really uh, close, like the few people we told, uh, whose version of being supportive and optimistic was not what I needed at the time because it was very, they, these doctors, I was going, we were going to a second opinion thinking, okay, these people are the best at what they do. Let's go talk to another group of people who are really good at what they do. And if they all agree, then we as parents have done, and as a patient have done everything we can do. We've consulted, um, the, the best and they agree. And this is what we sh- we should do. We were not going in there thinking they were going to tell us something different. Um, I mean, we're lucky. We're incredibly grateful, but we went in there saying, you know what, if, so like I said, my husband's a professor when he doesn't, when he writes an article about Plato, he has to get peer reviewed for that to be in a journal. And it's just, you know, his ideas on Plato, multiple academics weigh in and say, well, you're right about this or not. And very smart people don't always agree. So in making as big of a decision as we were being asked to make, which is, you know, to terminate one baby to save another or to terminate both because there wasn't an opportunity to save both. It's a really big decision that we were going to have to live with for the rest of our lives. Why would we not get another smart person to just weigh in as well? Well, right? and or Celeste, one, one thing that so, I want to share too, you know, ha- being on the inside of the medical model and having seen a lot of things, and not to impute any ill motives or um, intentions to the people at the Philadelphia hospital, it is actually well known that top surgical centers do cherry pick their cases to have the best outcomes. That is a known phenomenon in the world of medicine. A hundred percent. And that's, I'm, this is the other thing. Cause I'm, so I'm part of a Facebook group, which I think if, if anyone who's like dealing with something complicated, these Facebook groups are amazingly helpful. So I was actually dealing, like I signed up right away. So I was dealing with people who were going through it or had uh, been through it. And what I found out later was, you know, this center actually does, is very conservative about who they offer, um, you know, surgery to. And there were people who didn't just did what they said. So yes, a hundred percent, you know, especially when there's like new stuff going on, if people's averages are above the national average, it may be speaking to their talents, but it may be also speaking to uh, who's getting offered the surgery. Like you just like, you have to know that. The second piece, which was 
like really horrifying for me actually Vivat was I didn't understand so when we went back to we we leave Philadelphia we go back to New York we go back to our hospital I call you know because I'm I you know this is what I do for a living I was calling doctors all all over the city trying to figure out what was going you know what I should do what they thought and what I found out was uh and because my doctors kept telling me no that New York Presbyterian doesn't offer the surgery. They don't, blah, blah, blah. And what I found out was that um, this Philadelphia hospital was bring, is, is working to bring their program to offer the surgery to Manhattan. So there were actually financial interests in sending us to Philadelphia and saying that this other hospital didn't offer the surgery. So I hate to say it, and, I, and hopefully not on the micro level. You know, people aren't thinking about this when they're offering like telling people where to go or who offers what, but there was also a financial incentive and a conflict of interest in telling me that this other hospital didn't offer the surgery. Just and and I'm just saying it because people need to know that. And so anyway, so we go to this other hospital, and and Marcus and I are fully prepared for them to just agree. And the doctor looks at me and says, "You know what, ma'am? I'm sorry. This." It's all, it's all the criteria of twin to twin transfusion. And I, you know, I think you might need to have this surgery and Marcus and I were thrilled, you know, I'm probably the only people in his office ever to be like, yay. <laughs> Just what we wanted to hear. <laughs> you know, Cause at least we like that we had gone in thinking, you know, and I'm skipping some, some, you know, steps, but more or less it was, you, we were prepared for the worst never once expecting that we would have an opportunity. And then a bunch of questions come up out from that, you know, like, well, the other doctor told us if we tried this surgery, it would actually endanger baby A even more. And so now all of a sudden you're way, you have to weigh like, you know, if we're offering this surgery, you know, versus, so now we're weighing, if you try to save one baby, and, and you just terminate baby B and you just try to save baby A. Are you doing right by baby A compared to if you do this other surgery and you're giving them both a shot, are you now risking baby A more than you would be with baby B, right? These are these like very weird statistics and choices you're making. And we were, what was amazing about our new doctors, so you can never, ever, ever, guarantee what the outcome is going to be like that's just no doc any doctor i would run for the hills if there was any doctor who told me like for sure this is what's going to happen because i control everything <laughs> what i loved about our new doctors is they spoke to us and put us and and gave us the information and answered the questions we needed and they felt there and maybe this is because it was a teaching hospital part of their job was to help us make really hard decisions. And one of the doctors, she said to us, you know what? Everyone sees twins and they think, oh, how cute matching outfits and double the fun and blah, blah, blah. And every time I see twins now, my heart stops because I know the complications that can happen. And this type of pregnancy, there are all types of difficult pregnancies, but this type of pregnancy is especially difficult because you are forced to make very difficult decisions. And what's right for you may not be what's right for someone else. And what our job is, is to tell you, like give you as much information to make the decision that is right for you. And we, Marcus and I, 
asked for studies and well, what about this? Well, what's what, you know, all, and there were emails and calls and they were incredibly helpful. They emailed us, they texted us. No question was not unanswered or not worth answering. And, you know, the other hospital we called to say, Hey, you know, there's different opinions here. Uh, you know, what do we make of that? And we never back from them. So, you know, some doctors don't want, just want to do their, and that's fine too, because I, I mean, I get it. There are days in my job where I'm like, don't ask me why we're doing it this way. I just know what I'm doing. So let me do it. Um, that's just not the right type of doctor for me. And maybe that is the right type of doctor for some other people, but because that didn't work for me, that's part of it or my husband. That's part of why we are able to get through this is because we knew I felt like I needed to ask these questions and make the choices myself since I was going to be the one who lived with the results. You know, if, if I did a surgery that I lost both, both boys or I compromised both boys in ways they wouldn't have been compromised, like that was going to be on me and not on these doctors uh, in the end. So they, they spent a lot of time informing us and, and, and helping. And what came out of that was you have to also, in addition, just like we were talking about with these genetic tests, you have to have like context for what they mean. Um, there are margins of error, especially when you're dealing with these ultrasounds and that you actually, like we had to track every three days we were going in and monitoring before we hit to that 18 weeks. And then even after the 18, after the surgery, we had to go in and monitor every three days because the, everything in there is so small and the tech and it's technology and it's giving you really good ideas of what's going on, but it's so dynamic in there that to take any one reading as like, this is what's going on. This is what your fluid level is. This is the size of the baby. This is, you know, this is their Doppler on like what their blood flow is, is naive because we actually watched in real time one read, like the, you know, oh my gosh, there's a big difference between the babies now. Okay. Now it doesn't look like there's a big difference in the size of the babies. Oh no, their, their, their heart rate is elevated. Oh no, it's just back to normal. That was a weird thing. Like we, for six months, so, you know, and so we, we ended up getting the surgery. The doctors were amazing. The surgery worked, you know, the first 24 hours is kind of this, like, do they make it through that? Our babies made it through that. Then it's like, do they make it through the next two weeks? They made it through that. And, and we were for six months, every three days, like watching these babies. And if there's anything I can tell anybody who's pregnant, um, having not gone through this is we ended up making a rule that we weren't going to freak out about any one reading unless it, it kind of duplicated itself at least two times, because I can't tell you how many times we went in there and it was like, oh my goodness, that's a really bad sign. And then you go back and it's like, oh, okay, it's okay. Or, oh no, now here's another bad sign. And so it really is. And that was part of what went wrong with the diagnosis at the other hospital was, you know, they actually had, saw us that one time for that eight hour stint and created this entire narrative, you know, with, you know, ultrasounds that only see so much. Like, it, I mean, their ranges and, 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 and we ended up having to get an MRI and the babies were moving so to make, you know, to see how everything's were going with the brains and, um, and the babies were moving a little bit and they're like, well, we didn't get very clear images, but we don't need you to do it again because any margin of accuracy that would, we would have increased by doing another thing doesn't count because there's a margin of error anyway in doing this stuff. 
So you have to know that this is a picture that is being painted of a very complicated, you know, environment. Um, and, and what the New York Presbyterian hospital did was they, they said, this is, you know, this is what this looks like. You know, it looks like you've got the twin to twin, you you meet all the criteria of this. Um, let's keep watching it and see how it goes. And we will intervene the way we need to intervene. And then we'll keep watching. And as we need to like handle stuff and you kind of pointed this out earlier, one of the things, one of the doctors said that was so brilliant was he said, some, you know, you can, we should be watching this, but you can also overwatch. So just because you're watching and you're seeing these things happen, doesn't mean that you need to, we need to react to it yet. I, and these people were like, these doctors we went to were great and they know they deal with tons of complicated stuff. And then when they did the surgery, he said, listen, the surgery is not the complicated part. I go in, I laser these things. That's fine. What's complicated is how your body reacts to it, how the babies react to it. Like that's what we just watch and we see and we manage. Um, and so to me, and, and, and I'm, I'm sure I've jumped around all over the place. If I had to share with people how this could be helpful for their story, if they don't find themselves in this odd situation, because it is a very sort of rare thing, is these technologies are not perfect. Doctors should know that they're that, you know, they're these are guidelines and they're using their experience to interpret these things for you. And you I really think you should, you know, make sure that you're knowing and, and, and if you find something that, that you know that, that you're owning what you're being told and not just kind of uh, doing whatever anyone tells you, don't be afraid to ask another to get another opinion from a doctor because very smart people don't always agree on, on what the answers are. You can't really, all you can do is do your very best. Like you can't control how, like there's a lot of guilt that like I dealt with as some, you know, like I, I work with a lot of, you know, health professionals. I'm like a very healthy person. And it was really hard to think, you know what, I'm not having the pregnancy I thought I was going to have. I thought I was going to have like the Angelina Jolie running around, you know, having this sort of, you know, fancy pregnancy. So, and I'm watching all my friends on Facebook, you know, run around the world doing things while I'm on bed rest for six months. And, and they didn't even recommend bed rest, to be honest. And I don't know if that's, there's all these complications with bed rest, but I knew when I like went to work, I felt like crap. So I did it, even though there's things, you know, it was what was right for me. And I'm glad I did it because I'm now dealing with, you know, some physical things from having been, I know it was like a modified bed rest. Um, but, but I do think it actually helped me with the pregnancy. Who knows if it did, but I made that, I made that call and, you know, my husband and I talked about that. Um, you know, I decided who I was going to tell and who I wasn't going to tell. And, um, and every three days I was going to the hospital, looking at these scans with the doctor, the doctors. And I asked whatever questions I wanted to ask. And if I didn't ask that question in the thing, I'd email the guy later and say, Hey, I meant to ask that. What did this mean? And I just knew that, and, and I, and I lit but the thing is, I also listened to the doctors because the doctors were brilliant. The doctors would tell me, listen, you're nervous about that. I see this all of the time What this, you know, we're watching it very closely. And if this were to happen, this is what we would do. So it's a combination of, of working with doctors who have had, had experience in what we were doing and that were amazing at what they did didn't hesitate to, to keep us informed and let us own that, that 
you know, this was our, this was my, and these were my babies. And, um, you know, I was in the driver's seat and, uh, even though they were the doctors, you know, like, and I don't, maybe there's, you probably have a better metaphor for this, but, you know, I was going in that room with those two, the, those two babies, my husband and these doctors, and we were talking about, and they were telling me, you know, how this was going to go and allowing me to be a part of that. And I appreciated it a lot. And um, anyway, so that, that was a bit of a, a ramp, but we ended up, what ended up happening was we made it to a scheduled C-section at 36 weeks against, you know, and, and we always knew when the doctors gave us, told us we could do the surgery, they said, listen, you have less of a shot than that national average because baby B is so far off and we don't need to go in how hard it is to sort of watch what we watched in those ultrasounds happen to our, our to, to baby B. Um, and, uh, and, um, and also like we, you know, we didn't, we didn't tell anyone really till right before we didn't actually even buy anything for them until after the boys were born. Cause it was just one of these instances where, you know, until they actually were born, nobody really knew for sure what we were going to be dealing with. And we just wanted the space, you know, to, to kind of figure out how we would handle that before people weighed in. Um, but, uh, uh, we made it to the 36-week C-section. The boys are fantastic. They didn't end up having to stay in the NICU. We've been prepared for that, but they were, you know, five pounds three ounces, five pounds eleven ounces. Um, a lot of the, you know, uh, one of the one of the guys had a little heart issue uh, that ended up healing itself. Another guy uh, had a little kidney issue that you know has has healed itself. One one of the guys is probably going to have a, a little bit of a, a surgery thing that's not a a, a big deal. Um, but you know you take it day by day now. But it, you know it seems uh, for the most part like we now are dealing with the same sort of concerns that other any other parent would be having. Which I'm you know I, I don't think you need to have this type of pregnancy to have those types of worries. I suppose, but. I think I learned a lot about this, about how to be a patient uh, and how to how like when it comes to to technology, to uh, doctors, to diagnoses. And I really want to share that with people because, you know, we go to school and, and a lot of times people say like, oh, we go to school, but we don't know how to get hired and we don't talk about jobs. But even more important to me, we go to school, we never learn how to be patients. Or, or take care of our health, you know, you know, you're just kind of at the mercy of whatever your personality is, or whatever skills you've picked up at work. And I think it's important we talk about how to be effective, uh, and be your own advocate and get results. And, you know, and, and I'm sure Viva, you talk all the time about how, you know, the errors that happen with your prescriptions or whatever it is. I think it's important that we all really share our best, you know, patient practices with each other because it, it, it's the difference between my having two babies and having none. Oh, Celeste, I, I just can't even imagine going through what you went through. And I'm so appreciative that you're willing to share this story because it really, your, your situation was sort of like at an extreme end of a spectrum in terms of what you had to deal with in terms of uncertainty and issues around even being able to sort of, in a way, bond with the babies psychologically. Obviously, your body was completely bound and your heart was completely bound, but to even, 
you know, not feel like you can buy little cute things and enjoy all that celebration during pregnancy. But in a sense, it's almost like a caricature or, you know, an exploded out story of what so many people go through day to day in so many different ways in their healthcare. And you've been so articulate. You've apologized for yourself a few times, totally unnecessarily. You have not ranted. You have not gone off tangents. You have been so on point. And, you know, I just want to say kudos to you in, and just kind of sending you a giant air hug here that you're on the other side and that you're here telling this story. So thank you. And just to say, you actually have like the two cutest boys on Facebook. So <laughs> thank you. And, and I, what you do is so fabulous. And this is, it's, it's because of the work you do and, you know, some of your colleagues and, and my colleagues, like, I just don't think we can talk enough about how people help them with their health, whether it's helping at home or in the doctor's office or, you know, you know, for, for family members, it's really the more we can share with each other this stuff, the, the better. Absolutely. You know, I, I think medicine is slowly changing in that integrative and functional medicine, sort of mind-body medicine and humanistic medicine are reaching into the world of conventional medicine. But sadly, at a lot of the big centers, a lot of decisions are still driven by economics, by fear, by lack of faith in the human body, by a kind of dominator model that the medical model is based on. It's, it's based on a patronizing model of I'm the doctor and you're going to do what I tell you. You know, it was only 30 years ago where women would get patted on the shoulder and sit and be told things like, you know, don't worry your pretty little head about this. I'll take care of it. Or even 30 years or a little more ago where patients were even not even told their diagnosis. Maybe a family member was told, but a patient was spared the diagnosis and a doctor had the right to do that. So we're switching from a more patronizing model, but the economic incentives are still quite strong in a lot of places. And the only way it's going to change is if we as patients, individuals, and consumers work a little harder. And it's very hard. I mean, I can't imagine you're struggling with the spiritual, emotional, psychological impact of it. You're also pregnant with twins, which is a big energy requirement in itself and having to sort through all of this. That's huge. Yeah. It's a lot, it's a lot of hormone and, uh, psychology and science. I mean, it's, it's a lot, but you know, you do it. That's the other, the other, on the other hand, you're also more powerfully, you know, when you've decided like, I want to do everything I can to help these guys make it. Uh, there's no more important why than that, right? <laughs> so you also find yourself being like much more of a warrior in that situation than you imagined you ever could be. It's a great word. It really is a great word. I and mean, we, I think maybe we need to switch the word pa patient to warrior. So the babies are, are getting grown and they're beautiful. Yeah. And you're on the other side them. of this. You Thank you, Aviva. Oh, such a pleasure. You mentioned, Celeste, and I want to, I'll wrap with this. But you mentioned that getting on a Facebook group was incredibly helpful for you. Do you have some advice for women who are going through any number of different situations that may be a complex pregnancy situation or something else? How did you do the research and find a Facebook group that you felt comfortable with? 
Um, so I think Facebook groups are very similar to doctors or you also, there are people on there who have great advice and then there are people on there who have terrible advice. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You have to go in like your eyes wide open as well, which is basically, it's just another sort of resource of like, Hey guys, I've like looked this stuff up online. I've talked to this about my doctors. Have you guys talked to this about your doctors or to your doctors? What's your experience been? And I actually just kind of uh, on the Facebook side joined a bunch, like joined a bunch of them um, and interacted on a bunch of them. Uh, and now I'm like, there are a couple of people who I was like, that's not my style of a human or their approach is not mine. And then I ended up, there was like one lady who we just kept, like kept having the same situation over and over again. And we're like, uh, we used to call each other the Doppler or, or the, uh, the doppelgangers because <sighs> our boys were going through the same kind of random stuff. And they're like, we're still good friends now from this. And then we reach out, you know, we, you, I still go on like every day. And if I see someone who's dealing with something that, you know, I dealt with, or I think I can be helpful with, I actually just act, actively reach out. So um, to me, my, I, I, I've seen people also, I, I think, I think you have, I've seen people say stuff in these Facebook groups that are just so wrong sometimes too. So that's the one thing I would just say about the, the social, the social media is it's social media and there's good advice and bad advice and, you know, take, it's just, especially with something like what we're dealing with, which, you know, here's a good example. So uh, the surgery, I think, is like only like 15, 20, I don't know how how, how many years old the surgery is. It's, it's fair, fairly new. And my husband and I had a question. So baby B, who is the donor, uh, is a little bit smaller than baby A. Um, and is and that's something I would say to people about twins and identical twins. Like, you know, and, and probably all babies, to be honest, like I, I would uh, slow your roll before you kind of comment on how kids look or what the deal is on stuff, because you don't know why. And we get a lot, we get lots of comments all the time about how one guy's a little bit bigger than the other. And it's fine. We're cool with that. But I can imagine others in other circumstances that that can be a nerve for people. So I'd just be, you know, be careful before you weigh in on, on stuff on, on kids, because you don't know, like the history of, of how things got like this. But uh, we wanted to see, like, well, does this mean, you know, how, what does this mean as far as size? Like, is it, are they always going to be different? Like, is it, when they say that baby B is always going to be smaller, does it mean, like, what, to what extent? And we couldn't find anything online about it. And then we realized it's like, oh, because no, and nobody could give us answers. It's because the surgery is so new, right? So, like, no one knows past, like, however, whatever age, what, the, what these results are. So if, if I had to say anything about the groups and stuff, you know, engage in them because it's a different vantage. It's like an experience advantage versus, versus like the, the doctors who are like going through the, the treatment side of things um, and, you know, find what works for you and who resonates with you. And again, it's always you're, you're the one who's in charge. Celeste, thank you so much. And I want to just reemphasize that that phrase that you just said about really checking in with what resonates with you because as I listen to your story throughout this hour thank you for spending so much time with us that we've been chatting I realized that a lot of what you spent a lot of time doing was checking in with yourself and how does this feel to me and is this feeling right and you were you were including that in your information along with 
the intellectual and scientific facts. And I think that's something that we often as women are also taught not to do. But how you feel, whether it's in regard to a doctor and how they're talking to you, someone on Facebook or someone in public, is, is so important for us to to stay in tune with that and let that inform us as well. So thank you for including that that remark about checking in with what resonates with you. And again, thank you so much for being here today. I am so delighted to get to at least witness your kids growing up on social media and to have you in my life as an advocate for my book because you're just clearly, you're a human advocate. So <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you, Aviva. And, and, and anything I can do to help with what you're doing and, and what people are experiencing, I, please don't hesitate to let, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll do whatever I can. Thank you. I will let you know if there are comments that come in, people might have specific questions and then I can get those to you in an email. If there's anything that, you know, really stands out as somebody really, you know, asking for some, from some help that might be something that you could guide them in the right direction, but I won't inundate you. I promise. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Thank you, my dear. All right. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Natural MD Radio. If you did, please go to avivaram.com and join the conversation about the show on my blog. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. It's free and it's jam-packed with powerful tips to help you take back your health naturally. That's avivaram.com. Take care and see you next time.